Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Wadine's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us once again as we continue to explore constitutional and civil rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome any of our new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardina. I am the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Well, thank you, Jackie. I'm Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law, and we also have campuses in San Luis Obispo, Bakersfield, and Santa Rosa, and we're glad to have you here today. Today, we have the privilege to speak with Orly Lobel, the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for Employment and Labor Policy at the University of San Diego. She is the author of several books, but today she's here to discuss her newest book, The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. In the book, Orly persuasively argues that we can and should effectively harness artificial intelligence, or AI, to achieve equality. She asserts that AI is not going away and is likely to become even more sophisticated with time. So while it is still in its development, it's the time to create the legal and governance structures necessary to harness and address the vexing issue of bias. Welcome to Sidebar, Orly. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Orly, in the introduction, I said persuasively argues because I started reading the book as a skeptic. Like so many people, I'm concerned about the downside to AI, facial recognition software that misidentifies people with darker skin tones, algorithms that routinely recommend different outcomes, let's say for mortgage rates based on gender or race or even a zip code or a faceless corporation owning and selling my data for profit. It still freaks me out when I Google a product and then an advertisement instantaneously shows up elsewhere. But I actually finished the book with some excitement about what might be possible and cautiously optimistic. Today, Mitch and I would like to spend some time talking about how AI can aid our centuries-long effort to build a more just and equitable nation and then to spend the rest of our time discussing the legal and governance structures we need to build to make it a reality. I think that's probably the more difficult of the two efforts. Before we dive into some of your ideas, though, I want to make sure that our listeners have a grounding in what we mean when we use the term artificial intelligence or AI. Can you give us a basic definition? Absolutely. But first, I'll say, Jackie, that that was a great introduction. Thank you for that. My goal, uh, apparently with you as a reader, has been achieved. It's great that, you know, that's what the Equality Machine sets out to do. And also, you know, with the listeners, when you, when you ask about what is AI, I think we should all be kind of comfortable in being versed in this big, vast field of what we call artificial intelligence, even when we're not coders, when we're not programmers, when we're not data analysts. We still can understand what it is really that we fear, what are the places where there can be failures. So to your question of what is artificial intelligence, it's a very broad, there's not necessarily consensus of exactly 
everything that it might include. But in general, the agreed upon definition is that any artificial or digital computerized technology that is mimicking human functions in some way. In the book, I talk about social robots. I even talk about sex robots. Uh, you know, there's a whole range of what is being created that creates some replacement of our human functions with technology. So Orly, you, you talk about what AI is, and you talk about it's the way you design the algorithms that could either cure or replicate bias and past wrongs. What, what does that mean, that the algorithms could either cure or replicate bias or past wrongs? To your question, in the book, I talk about the kind of better ways of designing automated processes versus things that have been AI wrongs, AI fails. And certainly there's no denying that there's been a bunch of AI fails and there still are a lot of risks and wrongs. Jackie described, for example, a very kind of notorious, I think well-known example of facial recognition being biased racially and gender biased when it's less accurate when you're putting it to task to identify different people and, and it, it does better on white male faces. That That is actually a problem that is one of the, I think, more straightforward ones to solve. That is a problem that's sourced in having partial training data fed to an algorithm. So absolutely one of the perhaps, uh, you know, number one rule of thumb that we have to have. And, and this is actually, Jackie, a role for policy that you asked me about, you know, to absolutely make sure that when we're deploying algorithms, we want to test that they were trained with complete, you know, representative data sets, and they don't have this inaccuracy for certain groups. There are other ways in which algorithms can replicate past wrongs that are a little bit more difficult to tackle because, and, and this is, again, I think when we talk about AI bias, uh, there's other issues that we can talk about. And Jackie already alluded to how she doesn't like surveillance in general, like knowing what she likes, knowing her preferences as a bot that offers advertisements. That's a separate issue. But for me, it's very important that we really have this orderly conversation of what are the, the issues, um, that we don't bundle them all together. And I show how a lot of times the, the media and our popular understanding does bundle. So we have these ideas of weapons of math destruction as a title of a bestseller or automating inequality all bundled together without exactly sorting what it is that we fear. Is it the inaccuracy? Is it the partiality? that can be improved. Orly, if we adopt the objective of using AI to remove or minimize human bias, which is unlikely to be objectionable to anyone, how hard is that going to be to achieve? The more difficult problem to tackle is, for example, if you take a hiring app, kind of resume parsing system that automates, and this is done, I mean, this is already in, in uh, use in the vast majority of Fortune 500. All of these processes initially are nowadays done by algorithms that try to figure out who you are as a candidate. Do we want you to work for our consulting firm, for our law firm? Th there can be definitely problems of the AI just reflecting when the, the existing inequities that are, you know, pervasive in our society. For example, one really bad way to do automation of hiring is to just say, if you're Amazon, just tell your 
algorithm, look at who we've hired in the past and replicate that. So that, you know, inherently will result in a gender bias, a racial bias, because in the past, it was humans that made these decisions, and they inherently made these bad decisions. To follow up on that, because where you started to win me over in the book was some of the great examples of how AI has been used to both detect bias and then to correct bias. So one of the things that the Airbnb example that you gave where they realized that black customers or black owners of Airbnb were being treated differently either in the reviews or whether or not they were requested to be a guest in the home or allowed to be a guest in the home. And Airbnb responded to that quite positively and started thinking about, well, how can we do things differently so that doesn't happen in our system? But that was a voluntary decision on the part of Airbnb. When you're talking about all of these companies who are using these algorithms, it's got to be voluntary right now for them to make the changes you're describing to both detect the bias and then correct for it. Is that right? It's kind of right. We still have our anti-discrimination laws that carry over to a lot of contexts of uh, digitalization. So if a company is using software to decide about promotion and hiring and pay, it, it doesn't get any kind of free, no reliability card just because it's automated the process. We have those same laws that have always been on the books. That we There are ways to now apply them to to check, to have that check on, on businesses. So, so definitely there is kind of that threat of the big guns of litigation. At the same time, you're right, like the example of Airbnb, it's not clear that they have a responsibility to correct for human biases when it's just kind of a consumer to consumer and they're just there as platforms. Although there, again, I think that there are ways to look at and, and the Federal Trade Commission is looking at platforms that are designed in ways that are discriminatory. So there, are, there is kind of the, the legal background there. But more importantly, I think that the best platforms, the best companies understand that there is other than just the fact that it's the right thing to do. There's also a business rationale for getting it right, for making our exchanges, our market exchanges more rational and fair and equal. For example, the well, the Airbnb study is, is great is a great example where we want to value, you know, the homes in the same way and, and we want to remove discriminatory tendencies. Orly in this example of Airbnb. What steps could be taken to remove or reduce discrimination? And are they complicated? There are ways to do that with different kinds of design, like you know, not immediately showing the picture of a host, for example, that, that will prime human biases. That's something that I celebrate in the equality machine because again, as Jackie said, you know, for centuries we've had discrimination in the market and marketplace. And there's so many studies that support that and just kind of the offline interactions of people and in, in workplaces and in retail and credit and all of the different industries that we have. But it has been very difficult to detect it. And even when you detected it, you don't have that kind of immediate design change that is available on platforms. We are going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back with our conversation with Orly Lobel in just a minute. You ought to be a lawyer. 
How many times have you heard this from your relatives, family, or co-workers? So what's stopping you? San Luis Obispo College of Law offers on-site and hybrid online evening classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. To learn more about their accredited degree programs or to apply for their next term, go to slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. Your community, your law school, your future. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Welcome back to our conversation with Orly Lobel. One of the things that I thought was compelling, and I don't remember if, if quite if you wrote it or if it was a quote from someone else in your book about the idea that we've been trying to change hearts and minds for centuries when it comes to discrimination and bias. We haven't been able to do it, but we can change the algorithmic bias without having to go through that human resistance that we often have to it. I see how for, for decades, even after we've had laws on the books that say you can't discriminate, it's in some ways it's become more difficult. On the other hand, these kind of more subtle ways of discrimination are very, very difficult to detect. And they're certainly very difficult to correct because even when you point to somebody that like, you know, you have like an executive that you show, they sometimes they don't even realize that they have this unconscious bias. But what it's it's very difficult to shed our biases for all of these. Um, and by the way, I want to say that that's true, not only about our identity based biases, but just our general like behavioral biases that so I, I study behavioral bias and you know, behavioral law and economic questions about like our cognitive failures. Uh, how do we think uh, all kinds of irrationalities that we have about accounting for the future, about what we focus on, how different presentations of information would lead us to different kinds of choices, all our ju judgment and decision making and perception. So, but we can actually direct algorithms to understand that and we can check on them. We can check progress in, in kind of a much more readily available way. You have the this digital paper trail of showing, look, here's the big data. Here's all the records of how an algorithm has been sorting through and, and this is what it proposes as the people that it values more. You can actually check. Is it doing better on in terms of diversity or worse? Let me ask about that for a second. Let's assume for a moment I'm convinced with what you just said, that the algorithm will check and it can determine that there are biases or there are better ways to do it. Historically, you, you mentioned briefly some of the government efforts to protect employees, protect consumers. Is it going to require that the government have access to the same type of algorithmic protections, review, software? software, systems to be able to balance? And if so, how is government ever going to keep up? Private industry has a profit incentive to make this work well. Government historically works in arrears. Who knows what era of software the IRS is still using? <laughs> what about this type of future thinking work? Yeah, I think this is a super important 
question and focus. While it's always been true that government is always underfunded, under-resourced, and doing a catch-up game with any kind of technology or business innovation, what I argue is that part of this, it's part of this mindset of slowing down automation rather than engaging with it front on and celebrating successes as well. So that's a very important message of my research is that when we're all the time on the defensive, when we're all the time just saying, this is all bad, what we need is to have a right to human in the loop, for example. Sometimes these solutions make sense, but I'm arguing that a lot of times they are actually slowing down the best processes of automation and checks on automation. If you were concerned that using government checks and balances merely stifles forward progress, what is the alternative? What I think the, the better path of policy is to have this imposed duties on, on private industry to have this comparative lens. So I think in our conversation already, the, the listeners should have understood that what we're talking about all the time and what we should be talking about, what we want is a comparative advantage. We shouldn't have this double standard that we hold algorithms to some kind of perfection, like never fail idea and until they're a hundred percent you know not fallible we're not we're not adopting them we need to look at the status quo versus what te what technology can ameliorate can improve upon a very easy intuitive example be our debate on how do we regulate autonomous vehicles um, self-driving cars i think there's a lot of irrational reporting also on that front where you hear about a self-driving like robo taxi getting to an accident and immediately that's translates into oh you know we can, we can never you know we can't allow these non known you know no human in the loop cars to be on the road that's the wrong question for policymakers to ask and the wrong re regulatory frame you know to have we have to ask overall are they safer or are they riskier than what we have now, which are humans who make all the time, you know, mistakes and, you know, human human error is like the number one uh, reason for accident. And so to your question, Mitch, we, we have to have these requirements. I think that's absolutely correct to, to, to have requirements that when industry is adopting automated systems, that the first step is to do self audits on whether they believe that they are doing better and on the fronts that we care about, whether it's safety, quality, diversity, accuracy. So is it a fair read that you think standards should be applied equally to both government and industry? Government should apply those same questions to itself when systems like Compass that are the systems that automate adjudicative functions, who gets bail, what is what is the sentencing, the right sentencing to people in the criminal justice system. There's been so much pushback and critique against automating these functions that belong historically to a human judge. It turns out that when you actually look at the empirical data, these, these systems have been getting better and they are on average outperforming human judges in terms of racial fairness and equality. Orly, you may find it interesting that a recent guest of ours, Charles Jay, who's a law professor who has been studying judicial performance, judicial ethics for decades, this is his area of specialty, we asked him about the application of AI to some functions of the judiciary. Not something he's written on, but he has studied judges for decades. And his answer was, absolutely, there'll be some functions in which this is perfectly appropriate. I must say, surprised me a yeah, bit. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That 
perfectly makes sense to me that somebody who actually is a real expert and sees the fallibilities, the problems from within in the system that, that we exist will understand that there are some functions that we should be automating. And, and in fact, I'm arguing even more than just allowing it, I'm arguing that at some point we will need to have not only this right to human in the loop, but actually a corollary right of the right to no human in the loop. It would be like a, a bench trial versus a jury trial. I could have a AI adjudication versus well, a human I, I, adjudication. I um, envision it, a right to demand that the standard of care, you know, whether it's like government functions or other, you know, just like private functions at some point, and we can argue on when we're going to get there. It's hard. It's really hard when I talk to people who are non-experts. Actually, it's it's quite interesting, Mitch, because I I've seen like the more experts uh, I talk about, people who are like Nobel laureates, Danny Kahneman, who's the Nobel laureate in behavioral economics, social psychology, meets you know decision making, and Richard Richard Thaler, who also uh, is the father of behavioral finance. They all speak very much with that tone of humans are so bad at making decisions that absolutely we can envision a lot of functions going to machines we are more we should be more trusting of machines but in general we have this and this is really a puzzle that i wanted to research when i was writing the equality machine we have this tendency of fearing machines and we have a lot of irrationalities and kind of human machine interaction which i think it's an opportunity right now to to try to overcome and and to again just not you know jackie you said cautiously optimistic it's not that you know we shouldn't be hesitant or we ask all the right questions but we really need to fear the right things and not have a, a like just a general fear <laughs> We are here talking to Orly Lobel. She is the author of The Equality Machine. We're going to take a break right now so we can hear from our sponsors. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law. Built for change. Built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Sailor Legal Service has been on the California Central Coast since 1991, under the same ownership and with the same capable team. Sailor is a 100% woman-owned business. If you call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, the same capable team will answer. You can communicate with the same person each time you contact Sailor. For your orders to subpoena records, on-site copying, process serving, and court services, sailorlegal.com. S A Y 
L-E-R-Legal.com. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Orly Lobel. Orly, it strikes me that there's two sides to what you've been writing about. One, you're talking about the function of machines, the function of the algorithm. Uh, Jackie and I were talking earlier about the data itself. Jackie, talk a little more about that. You'll be happy to know that you came up at Thanksgiving dinner, Orly, and your book came up at Thanksgiving dinner. I have a niece who is studying to be a nurse practitioner, and in one of her classes, they were talking about the dearth of health data or that there wasn't kind of a centralized location where they could have access to health data, which prompted me to to talk with them about what you had been talking about in relation to health data and in relation to data as kind of a public good and AI is kind of a public utility. Jackie, there's been huge histories of exclusion of people from data collection in clinical trials, in pharma, in keeping records on our health population. And I, I get very concerned when I hear people talk about data collection and those terms of surveillance, surveillance capitalism and data extraction with, the, with this flat assumption that the more we collect data, it will hurt. It will not only kind of be an invasion to our privacy in general, but it will hurt in patterned ways, in systemic ways, the more vulnerable. And I argue that that is exactly the opposite in a lot of contexts. So, for example, with gender-related data, we have uh, histories of exclusion and we have incomplete archives and systems of information about and and research about women's health. Until Until I read your book, I had no idea that women of childbearing age had been excluded from the clinical trials until 1994, which means that there was absolutely zero data on women of childbearing age and how they might respond to different drugs or or other health innovations. So your idea that the more data we have, the marginalized communities can then be included in our understanding of how drugs perform or what kind of things are better. I didn't realize until I read your book that the military is where the government got most of its health data to do certain research with. And so, of course, it excludes women. Of course, it excludes different ages as well. So it was just fascinating. And that was a real light bulb moment for me was to understand the exclusion of people. So collecting more data will actually help outcomes rather than see it as hurting people. That's exactly right. But the second thing that I think is very important in the context of healthcare is that we need to recognize that the vast majority of people around the world, of women around the world, don't have access to high-skilled expert radiologists for a once-a-year mammogram screening that they can afford. But technology can actually be scaled in ways that radiologists, human radiologists, cannot be scaled in, in that kind of ease. So I think we should be having that kind of conversation of like the, the level of risks that we're willing to and inaccuracies that we may be willing to accept versus the benefits of having more people have access to these technologies around the world, curing more, uh, detecting early more diseases. Those are the right questions to be asking. So Orly, I'm convinced. I'm convinced <laughs> that part. At the risk of, God help me, being the one who talks more bureaucratic and government 
oversight, which is 180 degrees opposite of my general viewpoint on the world. But let me let me try to channel that for a moment. I still am not convinced that it answers the following question. I, I tell students in our con law class, you know, I have a constitutional right to walk across the street, sit in the middle of an empty field, and just sit there. The government does not have the right to ask me why I'm sitting there unless, and then you fill in a couple blanks, I'm at the immediate risk of my own health or wellness, I'm threatening someone else, I'm trespassing on somebody else's property, but unless I'm doing something else, the government has no right to ask me even who am I and and why I'm there. Now, you're making the argument that information should be free. Where does my information get to sit in the field and be protected from the government coming in and saying, we're just going to look through it for a while and use it for all these noble purposes, but it's my information. How do we balance that? Well, first of all, Mitch, it's a very American question, framing of the question. <laughs> right? um, and, and sure, I'm, I'm very happy that you're asking this question, but it is really an opportunity to, to remind us that privacy in, and um, kind of freedom from government intervention, from state action is, is a constitutional right. It's a liberty, but there are many other values that we also care about. These are hard questions. These have always been hard questions those balances that we make. It's it's not new in that sense. There's all these norms and, and, and values that we care about. And a lot of times they conflict. Again, those are the debates that we need to be having. And we need to understand that the technology is here. So the technology is not going back into the bottle. Sadly, coming to the end of our time. So I wanted to circle back to what we said we were going to try to have you talk about, but we didn't get as much as we wanted to, which is in the book, you talk about developing the equality machine mindset. And that means designing the governance systems and the infrastructure that we need that's going to channel AI down that kind of progressive path that you are talking about in the book. What is it that we need to do? What are those governance systems or uh, legal structures to to make this a reality? I think first and foremost, early on, we need to think about digital literacy as a national strategy. I think we should have much more of a kind of a public system of investment and, and shifting the mindset, reframing the debates. That's what we're all trying to do. And thanks for talking about all of this. The Equality Machine is a triumph. So well done. Thank you for your book. And to remind everybody that we not only have your bio on our website, but we've got a link that people can access to get the book. Thank you for having me. Jackie, our discussion with Orly Lobel was, was simply fascinating. She's certainly given an enormous amount of thought about where we are with data, where we are with artificial intelligence, and how critical it is that these things are part of our future. I must say, I'm convinced that's true. I'm equally concerned, and, and I would say that she didn't completely convince me that we know how to have the fundamental protections that we've talked about in Sidebar on other areas to make sure that our core fundamental constitutional rights, privacy, protection still exist and are there. I'm fearful of it. For big companies, I'm fearful of it for big government. So it's an, I'm not picking on, 
on the high-tech industry as she might be fearful that I'm doing. I'm concerned that data run wild it does not necessarily meet my comfort level of my individual protections and those of the rest of our of our society. And as she mentioned, I admit and own that that's a very American view based on our Constitution. Yeah, I think culturally and constitutionally, Americans have a very different view of privacy than someone uh, in a state that has a national health service where they go to the government and all their data is available to the government. So I, I, I was glad that she declared that because I think it was a really important thing for us to recognize. We're talking about constitutional and civil rights here in the United States, but this idea of artificial intelligence and technology platforms is a worldwide, it's a global issue. The things that she's talking about, scaling up some of the health innovations and bringing them to places where they don't have access to the same health care is an I think something you and I can absolutely get behind. I actually was very impressed with the book and the stories that were told in there that were really intended to show the reader this is the good that can come from it if we harness it well. And I think that's the piece that you're uncomfortable with still. I'm not certain about, and I'm not sure Orly is certain about, which is how do we harness it well? Like what are the infrastructures and governance and legal rights that need to be put in the place to make sure that it's not that biggest concern of data run amok? And so it's something that's going to be a part of our future. You and I are probably going to be having more conversations about it because it's impossible for us not to have technology woven into any of our discussions about constitutional or civil rights in the United States. So uh, I, I think this will be one of many conversations that we'll be having. And in fact, later in the spring, we have a program that's specifically going to talk about the application of AI in the evaluation of cases and creating data systems that give more public access to the court system and to prior cases and how to search them and how to find what you need, particularly as Charles Jay said earlier, giving those who don't have lawyers greater access using AI and software systems to gather the information they need to protect themselves. So, so there is no doubt that this is just chapter one of this conversation. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about or see more about the upcoming episodes that we have, you can go to sidebarmedia.org. You can see all the guests that are upcoming, read their bios, and you actually have a page dedicated to homework that gives you a list of readings that you can have access to. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, and then Legal Talk Network also hosts our podcast. So thank you again for listening. Our program today is produced by David Eakin, and what is not artificial intelligence on our program is our original music produced and performed by David Eakin, and thank you to our social media maven, Go Go Zoger. For more information about Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org. California-accredited law schools, including the Colleges of Law, 
and Monterey College of Law provide affordable, quality legal education in evening online and on-site classes. Our law school graduates qualify to sit for the California bar exam and upon passing are licensed as California attorneys. For more information about attending a California accredited law school near you, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.